Hello, and welcome to Geopolitics Decanted. This is Dimitri Alperovich. I'm chairman of Silverado Policy Accelerator, a geopolitics think tank in Washington, D.C. Today, I'm very pleased to co-host this show with Sarah Stewart, our executive director at Silverado. And our guest today is Kevin Wolf, former assistant secretary of commerce for export administration from 2010 through 2017, and is currently a partner at Aiken Gump, focusing on export control compliance and Kevin is also a fellow at the Georgetown Center for Security and Emerging Technology. Sarah, Kevin, welcome to the show. Great, thank you. Happy to be here. All right, so on October 7th, we had truly earth-shattering news come out of the White House, earth-shattering, of course, for the tiny minority of people who follow the esoteric details of export control policy. But the news was that we're implementing some truly unprecedented restrictions on the Chinese semiconductor industry. We're now restricting China's ability to obtain advanced computing chips, develop and maintain supercomputers, and manufacture advanced semiconductors. The rules are very complex, and they went into effect almost immediately, sending shockwaves through global supply chains, with some companies already suspending sales and services to semiconductor manufacturers in China. While it may take uh, weeks or even months before we can truly appreciate the impacts of these rules on U.S. and foreign companies, and frankly, on China's own ambitions. We're going to start today with a deep dive on what we know, why it matters, and perhaps do follow up in the weeks to come with further analysis. So, Kevin, I've always believed that slowing down Chinese progress in the space, in the chip space, was absolutely imperative to our security. Is this what the Biden administration is trying to achieve here? And how big uh, is this action a departure from past policies? Uh, sure. You know, that is a good summary of the objective. And um, uh, if you look to the speech that National Security Advisor Solomon gave to an emerging technology conference about three or so weeks ago, um, that lays out the broader policy vision, the broader national security objectives um, of these controls. And essentially what he said was that we need to think about export controls um, given the national security threat that China is, uh, but he didn't use the word China, but we knew what the reference was about, um, uh, to achieve broader strategic objectives. Um, And and the reason and the relevance of the word strategic is that since the end of the Cold War, the primary focus, with exceptions here and there, of export controls has been to regulate uh, the movement, the export of physical items, software and technology, and occasionally services to specific end uses and end users um, of um, um, or destinations of national security or foreign policy concern. And that scope of national security in that context has largely been defined by uh, lists of items of specific commodity software and technology maintained by the U.S. and, and its multilateral regime partners that are for the production, development, or use of weapons of mass destruction, their means of delivery or conventional weapons. And, and what, Sec- what National Security Advisor Sullivan said was that we need to think more broadly about the force multiplying technologies of which advanced compute quantum AI applications were the number one thing that he listed. And that the era of just simply trying to stay ahead a couple of generations with respect to such items is over. And we must maintain as large of lead in, as possible given how significant these types of technologies are, even if exclusively civil in their direct and immediate application, 
um, are nonetheless to the modernization of a military um, and and the effectiveness of an economy that could compete against the United States. And and so I, I refer you back in terms of a, a really sort of you know no, uh, not novel but nonetheless significant at the first time either the Trump or Biden administrations has articulated a very clearly a, ver a very clear and coherent articulation of a new concept for national security with respect to export controls. Well, Kevin, before before we dive into exactly what those are, uh, you and I have worked together before, and I think it would be helpful if you sort of set the table here a little bit by just describing some of these very complex topics that are now front page news. So maybe a short primer on what we're talking about when we were talking about export controls, and then a description of some of these terms like dual-use technologies, unverified list, entity list, presumption of denial, and foreign direct product rule. Sure. So again, the, the one-sentence summary of all of export controls are the rules that regulate three verbs, the export, re-export, and transfer of physical items, software, and technology, information which is needed for the development or production of those things, and occasionally services or activities of U.S. persons, which I'll get to in a minute, uh, to destinations, end uses, and end users. And those three distinctions are really quite critical to understanding um, uh, this rule. And um, they are uh, implemented, administered uh, on this side of the issue by the Department of Commerce's Bureau of Industry and Security, which is, uh, works with uh, the Defense Department, State Department, and Commerce Department at assessing what the scope of the control should be and to the extent a permission is required in the form of a license deciding when that license should be granted or denied to export, re-export, or transfer. Um, and, and in order to implement that broader vision um, of national security as articulated by um, uh, Jake Sullivan, uh, they, the rule that was published on Friday did the following things, and it's if combined, it's 160-plus pages, so I'll just give you the, the, the top-level points. It uh, imposes licensing requirements on a, a list and a type of advanced and high-performance computing chips and related computer commodities, um, and largely GPUs and, and, uh, that are advanced and electronic assemblies uh, that they're incorporated into. Um, new licensing requirements for activities that are support for the development of a, a supercomputer, uh, and there are technical parameters for what supercomputer is. Uh, there are new controls on the export of um, items for support of semiconductor development uh, or um, uh, advanced semiconductor development or production in China. There are controls over foreign-made items uh, through the use of a extraterritorial foreign direct product rule that I'll describe later if they are for advanced uh, computing items or supercomputing applications. Um, entities that are and have been involved with high-performance computing in China that have been on the entity list already, which is a list of entities to which exports from the U.S. are prohibited, uh, effective October 21st, foreign-made items that are made with U.S. technology or uh, equipment to those entities, those 28 entities, are listed um, there are specific types of manufacturing equipment and related parts and components that to any end use in China are now prohibited. And these are items that are specific to making advanced node semiconductors. Um, if you are shipping something to a fabrication facility, a semiconductor fabrication facility that also manufactures um, advanced node integrated circuits, um, then those li licenses for those types of exports 
are required. And the three thresholds are if the facility is making logic at essentially 16 nanometer or smaller or what's called non-planar, which is the architecture um, of, of, a, of a logic uh, semiconductor, uh, DRAM, dynamic random access memory, if it has a production technology node of 18 nanometers or uh, less half pitch. And then if the facility is a facility that produces or develops uh, NAND flash memory semiconductors with 128 layers or more, then exports to that facility get caught. And then, and then effective yesterday, uh, U.S. persons, and this is a really novel part of the role, rule, um, if, it's a, if it's a U.S. person, whether it's an individual, somebody with a passport or a green card holder, regardless of where they are and, and regardless of what company they work for, or if it's somebody acting for or on behalf of a U.S. company, um, exports of anything foreign-made from outside the United States that they facilitate or send or or any services that they provide to foreign-made items, um, if it's to a uh, for use in development of integrated circuits at one of these um, fabrication facilities that one of the, does one of these three kind of advanced node um, chips, then that activity by those U.S. persons, again, even involving wholly foreign-made non-sensitive items, that activity of a U.S. person is controlled. There are um, There was a temporary general license issued uh, for the GPUs and some of the uh, compute activities to give them more time to finish up what they're doing in China and move. And then in a second rule that was published just a few hours earlier, um, there was a revision to something called the unverified list. And I'll go through and answer what each of those key words mean in just a minute. Uh, but basically, it said that for a group of, of, of companies that were added to the unverified list, of, uh, one of which was YMTC, um, that if the companies don't allow access or whatever requirements the government has made with respect to those companies, then in 60 days, or now 59 days, um, uh, those companies will graduate. They'll move to the entity list, meaning that exports to them of anything, whether toothbrush or otherwise, from the United States will be prohibited. And so all of that range of actions is in hundreds of pages of rules to implement that broader vision. But let me go through and I'll, I'll define those, those terms you asked about. So dual use is an expression that reflects the type of items that have both military and commercial uses that historically have been subject to export controls because they have an identified military application. And they're distinguished um, from military items, uh, items that are bespoke or modified or altered, um, well, for military applications. And, and since the Tiananmen Square sanctions for China, there's been a, an embargo on anything, regardless of significance, uh, that's in any way designed or modified for military applications um, or satellite applications. So what we're speaking about here in uh, these rules are items that aren't modified for military applications, but nonetheless were determined to have um, broader national security significance for the reasons laid out by uh, Nick Jake Sullivan. The unverified list is a list that actually I created when I was the assistant secretary, and it was meant to basically put pressure on the governments of China and, and then Russia in order to allow government agents to visit uh, companies in China or Russia or other countries that we might, but it was really about those two countries, uh, in order to do pre-shipment checks to verify that items uh, that we had shipped were being used properly or, or that would be used properly or post-shipment checks to verify that items that had been authorized. And, and the government determines who has access to those locations and the government, uh, the Commerce Department has changed that rule 
to say that if these companies don't do what we ask or the government doesn't do what we ask, then they go on to the entity list. And then the entity list is a rule that, um, or is a list of companies that's over almost 1,700 names now uh, all over the planet, uh, but a lot of them are in uh, China, uh, that uh, because those entities have been determined to have engaged in acts contrary to national security or foreign policy as broadly defined, and it's been different with every administration who's used this list differently, um, uh, basically, with very rare exceptions, all exports from the United States uh, or of U.S. origin items from anywhere uh, cannot go, cannot be exported to those countries. And with two exceptions, uh, Huawei and SMIC, that I'll get to in a minute, it generally means that all licenses are denied and, and it's effectively an embargo. So and what's Ke the other? Yeah. So, Kevin, let, let's focus for, for a little bit on, uh, uh, on chips because yeah. Financial Times is now reporting that leading U.S. chip toolmakers, and it's important for our audience to understand that the tooling, the equipment that goes into these fabs is really where a lot of the IP is. Without that equipment, you can't build a single chip. And most of these companies are in the United States, the Netherlands. Uh, the big company there is ASML um, that manufactures uh, advanced UAV technology that um, is used at the cutting edge <clears throat> chip manufacturing, <clears throat> and also in Japan. And uh, what Financial Times is reporting is that these leading chip toolmakers are suspending all sales and services to Chinese uh, chip-making companies right now. And even ASML is telling their U.S. staff to stop serving Chinese customers uh, while they assess these new rules. So do you expect this abrupt suspension? And, you know, we're not even a week in uh, since these rules are announced. Um, do, do you expect this to continue from these companies or... Um, is this a precautionary measure while they try to figure out these dense 140 pages of rules to figure out how they can um, adjust their compliance schemes and still continue doing business in China? Yeah, it's a bit of both. I mean, the, because it is so complicated, the companies that work hard to comply with the regulations um, don't want to inadvertently make a mistake. And it's actually quite normal with big changes uh, to basically put a hold on things to find out what is or isn't permitted. Um, and... and um, uh, with respect to the U.S. person part of what you're referring to, uh, that goes back to the uh, prohibition that kicked in yesterday uh, that says U.S. persons, whether a company or individuals, even if they're working for uh, a foreign company and outside the United States, are prohibited without a license from providing any support to the production or development of one of these kind of integrated circuits or, um, or facilitating in any way making easier uh, the, the transshipment or the shipment or the transmission of uh, e any foreign-made item, any foreign-made commodity, any foreign-made technology, um, any foreign-made software to one of the facilities that also produces uh, advanced node semiconductors. So I'll defer to Financial Times on its reporting, but the legal requirement makes, you know, imposes a licensing requirement and what you articulated makes sense. With respect to the cutoff of tools, it's not there. There are there are eleven specific types of tools, mostly deposition tools, that require license to anybody in China that were identified, and those are those that are specific to advanced node production. But the control is actually far broader on the export of anything uh, if there is knowledge uh, that it will be for use in development or production of integrated circuits at one of these types of facilities. And it goes even one step further if you don't know. 
what the technology node is at the facility that makes integrated circuits, then you have to ask. <laughs> and if you can't get an answer, then you have to apply for a license. Uh, so it imposes a due diligence requirement to know what the technology node is at the facility that you're shipping and, to. And, 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 and the, the license that you're applying from BIS now comes with a presumption of denial, right, from BIS, so you may not be very likely to get that license. Is that correct? C- correct. Uh, the, 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 there, was, there was some variation during the Trump administration, but historically, and I think the way it's being applied now, presumption of denial means it's not going to happen. Uh, except in some really extraordinary circumstance or where there's an inadvertent consequence or um, uh, they imposed a license on something that they didn't realize was going to get caught up by uh, the rule. But generally means it's you start off being denied. But for some applications, a very few in this rule, uh, there is a case-by-case standard, which is a different review uh, standard. And if it's for a multinational, that is a non-Chinese-owned company owned by a a company in one of the um, allied countries in China, then uh, authorizations, the rules say, can be, and according to media reports, have already been uh, issued to uh, those foundries. So this is an important point because you have Western companies, you have companies from Korea, Samsung, SK Hynix, TSMC from Taiwan that operate fabs in China, and they can still continue getting the equipment into the country to operate in their own fabs while Chinese companies like SMIC and, and what others are cut off, right? Uh, correct. Uh, yeah, and there's been lots of media reporting about each of those, about the authorizations that the non-Chinese-owned companies have received, but it's a presumption of denial for Chinese-owned companies in China that are doing any of the cover type of work. So thinking about how this rule changes the landscape, it seems really sweeping, but there are already some existing controls in, in the semiconductor sector. How how big of a change do you think that this will be when the dust settles and, and companies are having to really make strategic business decisions about whether to keep operating in China or not? And, you know, what do you expect that to look like? Yeah, so I'm not a business guy. I'm a compliance attorney, so I'll defer on long-term planning to others. But what the Jake Sullivan speech, what Jake Sullivan said in his speech is that um, this is it. We are not sliding this scale. We're not going to adapt and adjust these standards over time as these now advanced technologies become more commonplace. We are drawing this line and, 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 and that's it. And, and, and fairly clear policies of denial for shipments of anything, really, from U.S. or outside the U.S. that are done by U.S. persons um, for any facilities in China that do this advanced node work. Um, and uh, so companies will have to adapt to that. You know, what was different about the, the Huawei policy when it was first announced in 2019, when Huawei was added to the list, I think for the first time in the history of the anti-list, there was a stated policy that licenses would be granted, and Secretary Ross and President Trump, you know, quite overtly said, "Yes, we will grant licenses." And um, and then eventually, a licensing policy was developed in the fall of 2020 or August of 2020 that said, if it was for um, 5G applications, they would be denied, but if it was for 4G applications and and lesser, then they would be reviewed or approved on a case by case basis. There's no such effort in this rule to try to draw standards for what will or won't be denied. It's just a presumption of denial, basically, for everything that's captured. 
And and so, you know, I think those making decisions should factor in um, the difference between how Huawei was handled and how these uh, uh, new controls are being handled and not to expect, you know, billions of dollars of licenses being issued, uh, except for, again, situations that were clearly unintended. This is a lot of novel rules and a lot of novel, novel applications of rules with fact patterns that are very complex. And I'm certain the government will see situations that weren't part of the plan and try to account for that to achieve the Jake Sullivan objectives, but not have a material impact on either things that are at the mature node or for uh, inputs um, of major tools uh, that are um, uh, widely available outside the United States. So, Kevin, the focus here, clearly, as you've talked about it, is these advanced chips. But if we look at the usage for these advanced chips, it's primarily things like gaming, your Xbox, your PlayStation platform, it's your iPhone and your laptop, and it's uh, cloud computing and some of these um, uh, AI applications, uh, which, which you know are important, obviously, to to economy. But the vast majority of the chips that are being manufactured are actually not the advanced chips, right? There are these mature nodes, as 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 you mentioned, twenty eight nanometer, forty nanometer, and uh, all the way up to three hundred nanometers, and so forth. That <clears throat> A present literally in everything around us, right? That's your car, that's your TV, that's your microwave, that's your washer, uh, washing machine. And most importantly, that's virtually all of the weapon systems. So from a national security perspective, it seems to me that cutting off China from the, uh, the ability to manufacture the mature nodes is also incredibly important because if you want to halt their progress on being able to build next generation fighting, fighter jets, or, air, uh, or um, uh, uh, carriers and uh, amphibious uh, landing ships and, and, and the like, you need uh, to stop them at the mature nodes. And even in the advanced applications like AI and cloud computing and supercomputing, you, know, you may have one or two chips that are advanced that are going to be your 5 nanometer or 3 nanometer chips, and you're going to have 100 different chips that are uh, mature in that device, right? Everything from power management and Ethernet and... Wi-Fi and uh, voltage converters and so forth that you still need to make that device. And um, these rules ostensibly don't target those mature nodes. And my first question is why? And my my second question is, um, are we perhaps getting at these mature nodes through a a backdoor way by um, the virtue of the fact that a lot of the equipment that you need to um, manufacture advanced nodes, uh, let's say, you know, 14 nanometer chips, you're going to also need at the advanced uh, or at the mature nodes uh, at 28 nanometer, 40 nanometer and so forth. And uh, because that equipment is going to be prohibited from going to uh, the end user in China uh, because of the nature that would be used at the 18 nanometers and below, you, you would in effect also uh, impact their ability to manufacture more more mature chips. Is that the case or no? Um, welcome to the wonderful world of difficult decision making on dual use and commercial items and export controls. Um, you know, with respect to items that are modified for military applications, uh, it, it's easy. <laughs> you just they're embargoed. Um, and uh, I got a couple of topics in your comments. So first on the on for example a mature node chip that's nonetheless used in a weapon system. Um, so under the current rules. Uh, and rules that have been in effect for decades, if you if, if, if a chip or uh, a bracket or anything, no matter what it is, 
has been in any way designed or modified for a military application or a military item or a satellite or an intelligence application, those are and have been already completely export controlled and in fact embargoed to China for decades. Yeah. You're talking about the chips themselves. Uh, I was talking about the equipment to make those chips that would be used by SMIC and others that could then uh, be produced right. for, for Chinese military. So, so what the government uh, what, uh, has decided is that they are not trying to affect global supplies of, of uh, unmodified mature node chips that are widely available for commercial applications uh, for distribution within China and worldwide. And, and making a decision that those don't constitute the force multiplier or enabling technologies to the exquisite or advanced systems that the secretary, I mean, that the National Security Advisor described uh, in his speech. And leaving traditional controls and traditional knowledge-based controls and traditional prohibitions on U.S. persons from providing services for military items as the way to address um, uh, the, any policy issues for mature node chips. And then decided that regardless of end use, regardless of application, regardless of modification, that there is a per se national security threat from the advanced node semiconductors and the specific tools or other items that are used to make them or for any items or support um, with respect to uh, advanced computing or, um, or supercomputers. And so that's the, the, the policy line the government drew to focus on the advanced and leave untouched for now the unmodified mature applications for you know greater reasons. Does that answer your question or was I too elliptical? No, it, it does. It does. But, but do you think that uh, China is going to have a lot of issues procuring equipment even at the mature nodes uh, because of, of this dual use issue that you could use it? Well, I guess dual use is the wrong word here, but basically you can use it for manufactured advanced chips, but also more mature chips. Yeah. So what the what the what the list of new tools uh, uh, tries to do, and the government says it's going to continue working on these, is to de- describe the types of tools based upon technical characteristics that are specific to making the advanced node chips, and not trying to affect the types of tools that are needed to make mature node chips. And um, uh, and the part of the reason for that is the government said is that there is widespread foreign availability for those types of tools and that it would be ineffective to impose a unilateral control, which this rule is, I should have mentioned, this is a U.S. only control. No allies have joined in to impose similar controls on exports from their country uh, to rather focus on largely U.S. only made tools that are specific to the advanced node. And and, and they, they telegraph fairly clearly that they want to continue working with the allies, either through the Vossner arrangement or through other plurilateral arrangements to get the allies on board, and maybe once that is done, new controls will come online so that they are effective, i.e. It's, it would cut off the flow of the tools to China, and that they wouldn't be counterproductive in the sense that it basically opens up a market for competitors of U.S. companies who can export legally from their countries. Um, I want to go back to something that, that we talked about a little bit earlier when we were talking about exemptions for foreign companies that are mm-hmm. operating in China, because this seems like, on the one hand, it could be, uh, it, it makes a lot of sense to not, you know, bring our allies into this. In another sense, um, it seems uh, to be potentially a, a loophole um, and a way for companies under a different country's jurisdiction to, you know, continue to pass technology legitimately or illegitimately to the exact 
you know, users in China that we that we're seeking to prevent with these rules. So the question I would have, Kevin, is are there other safeguards that we can use? For example, if we get, you know, wind that a foreign company is is engaging in this kind of behavior or do you see the US, you know, working with the South Koreas of the world to figure out how they might implement their own uh safeguards and rules so that we have less swish cheese and 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 you know more of a, a fortified you know uh, collective regime um no good point so on the first point with the multinationals uh the uh, they're not exempt from licensing requirements or control or oversight and from the media reports they didn't get just a complete exemption or carve out or waiver um but uh rather um uh, you know a one year reprieve while the government uh tries to decide what the technology nodes for the non-US or the non-Chinese companies um uh in China should be uh there are about four i think uh, um and uh so i don't i think it's going to be an ongoing discussion and part of that i'm certain is with respect to your second question about how to get the allies on board as well to make the controls more effective so that companies from their countries can't just fill behind the US companies and provide the tools and equipment and technology and know-how that now can no longer be provided by US persons or from the United States so i think the with respect to the safeguards the way in which to make the policy objective uh that was described at the beginning of the rule and by and by uh NSA Sullivan is to get more countries on board and the reason that's difficult is the legal systems of all of the other allies were created under this post cold war nonproliferation focused export control uh regime structure that i mentioned at the beginning of the call that is they only have generally authority to regulate the lists of items that are agreed to by the four regimes uh for missile technology control regimes or nuclear supplier reasons or um uh the Australia group regulates chemical and biological weapons and the Vosnar arrangement um regulates items for use in producing conventional weapons and and they first have to be convinced that in their system they have the authority or that they would have the ability to create new legal authority to regulate the types of items in this list that are being controlled by virtue of their being advanced that's 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 what's new in this rule it's controls are being imposed just because the items are the advanced they're leading edge semiconductors they're leading edge because they have ultimately national security implications for the development of of weapons etc but they themselves are not the types of items that are being used in an identifiable way for the production or development or use of weapons and so that the allies have to can be convinced that there's a new way of thinking about national security uh, that will enable them to impose controls under their authority and then second they have industries in their countries um uh, that are far more exposed to china than is is always the case with the united states in terms of the percentages of sales from their countries to china and 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 so imposing controls on items that are overtly like you mentioned you know with gaming devices for advanced no gpus uh, you know that are overtly unambiguously overwhelmingly uh, commercial is a harder lift so um that's what's going on right now to address those issues to make the controls more effective to address the multinationals and to um uh, to bring the allies on board with comparable controls Kevin I imagine that uh, you've been very busy since these rules were announced and 
lots of your clients are calling you for explanations. But do you expect this to have a chilling effect on sales and services related to currently uncontrolled items and technologies that might be going into the Chinese semiconductor industry, given that people are looking at the trajectory of controls in the space and things are uh, only getting tighter and tighter. Um, and uh, the Jake Sullivan com- comments that you mentioned from a few weeks ago indicating that we are determined to place as much distance as possible between us and China in this space and that uh, the administration seems to be realizing that there are two ways you can win a race. One is to run faster than the other guy uh, or gal, and the other way is to slow them down. And now we seem to be working on both the CHIPS Act, of course, investments in in domestic manufacturing, domestic R&D, but also slowing down China with these export controls. So do you think that companies will be taking a hard look at their China business overall, even that business that's not yet being impacted by these controls? Uh, sure, absolutely. So on the business side, in terms of forecasting what relations might be, you know, in China for the next however many years, I'll defer to, you know, business analysts for that advice. On the, from an export control perspective, with any major action, there's a great deal of de-risking that takes place in the short term, meaning stop everything until we can find out what's legal or not, and we don't want to inadvertently violate the rules. And so call the lawyers, find out what the rule actually says, and if it's legal, we'll do it. If it's not, it's we won't. Um, or even if it's legal, if it's something um, that we object to uh, for other reasons, we'll decide to get out. Or if it's too expensive to you know, hire the lawyers and apply for licenses and it's just not worth it, then we decide to pull out altogether. Um, so in, in the short term, a lot of com- there will be an impact and there has been an impact even on mature node. Um, with res- from a purely compliance point of view, once people sort out and figure this rule out and they see that it really is tailored toward advanced node semiconductors and, and AI and advanced compute and, and supercomputer applications and the companies that provide support for all those applications, um, uh, at least the intent of the rule is to not have an impact on that type of mature node production, whether by Chinese or other companies. But again, it becomes very complicated from a legal compliance point of view, and some companies with low margins will decide to pull it all together. Um, and just to point out, you're absolutely right, the, the Jake Sullivan speech, not this rule, but the Sullivan speech that laid out the policy vision that was the background to this rule, um, uh, articulated both a run faster, the industrial subsidy, the state policy of support, uh, and a keep away strategy, the export control strategy together. And that also is quite new in U.S. policy because historically, and not like historically, like more than two years ago, and or before the Chips Act, really, it was it was really all just the keep away strategy, and to advance U.S. national security by economic security, uh, there wasn't any form of concept um, like what we saw with the Chips Act historically, and so it was all limited to achieving those much more specific post Cold War objectives uh, through an export control system. So we've talked we've talked a lot about what these rules are about and how they're likely to to impact US businesses but I want to turn now and talk a little bit about what we think the likely consequences mm-hmm. if any are going to be. So, you know, broadly speaking, um, this is a huge escalation uh, against against China in our policy. Um how should we be thinking about what China 
is going to do or or if they are going to respond is it likely to be in this area a related area uh something totally different uh would welcome any insights that you have on that yeah and i'm 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 not really the expert at chinese psychology or how the chinese might react so i would ask you to talk with those who are to get a better sense because um i'm assuming something significant will happen in retaliation because the impact of this rule is quite significant and the scope of it and the um the type of ways in which the controls are imposed over u.s person activities uh over foreign made items for example um, is, 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 you know, will have huge ripple effects. But I'll really have to defer to others to sort of, you know, comment thoughtfully on what the Chinese reaction might be. Do you think that this is going to delay their efforts to achieve chips independence um, by a significant number of years? Um, you know, they had this uh, Made in China 2025 plan to achieve uh, independence from uh, reliance uh, on Western technologies by 2025, that seems like a pipe dream now. Maybe it was even before this rule came into uh, to place. But do you have a sense for how long this is going to push them back? Yeah, that's the trillion-dollar question. Uh, so obviously, and clearly in the short or medium term, depending how you define that, this rule will be quite effective given the uh, how significant U.S. tools, U.S. technology support from U.S. persons are uh, to providing the inputs necessary to make advanced node uh, semiconductors in China or any other country. Um, um, uh, but, but history has shown uh, if the U.S. maintains unilateral controls in a sector or a type of items uh, or aggressive controls that are not the same as those imposed by other countries' export control systems, uh, then that creates an economic incentive for non-U.S. competitors to get involved and fill that gap, and through their cleverness and ingenuity and investment, um, will make competing products, whatever they are, in this case, production equipment or testing equipment or all the thousands of bits and bobs and parts and components that are affected by this rule, and and fill behind the U.S. company. So they become both ineffective, and then in this case, China will eventually start from its own capability or from non-U.S. sources uh, that are outside of China getting the same inputs from competitors, and, and and the U.S. companies won't be getting the billions in income from sales uh, to invest in their research and development uh, to out-innovate uh, their foreign competition. And in this sector, in this high-tech sector, I really can't emphasize enough the significance of massive amounts of money from exports that go into R&D. Because if you go through and talk to each of these companies, unlike some of the military companies that are at one, two, and three percent of what they're spend on R&D, uh, these these high tech companies, depending upon which one, you know, will have 20, 30, and 40 percent of their income to out innovate, and they they need that massive amount of income uh, in order to keep constant evolution and interaction with their customers. So so in the short term, no doubt, uh, the government's object- objectives in this rule as a U.S. only control will be very very effective. But they will become counter-effective, counterproductive, and ineffective uh, the longer that this stays a unilateral control. Which is why, you know, uh, I and others and the government has basically acknowledged what I just said. So this isn't anything novel. Uh, for this to be successful, they need the allies on board, and we'll start seeing uh, progress on that. I hope in the next months and year. But if it goes much beyond that, then um, I'm worried about counterproductive effects. I want to 
pick up on, on, on another theme that we've been talking about here, which is just how new and, and, and expansive this rule is, but it potentially, uh, if the new rules around the unverified list, uh, bear out, it could potentially have even much, uh, more significant impacts as entities might be graduated onto the entity list. So, Couple questions on, on that piece. The first is, why do you think that they added YMTC and, and not SMIC? And then secondly, you know, in order for this new unverified list portion of the rule to really go into effect, you need boots on the ground, uh, knocking on the door to get to that point where BIS would make a finding that in fact, there's been sustained uncooperation and therefore uh, a company should be or an entity should be put on the entity list. Do we have the resources to, to do that and to be able to really implement this portion of the rule? Yeah. So on the first topic uh, between YMTC and SMIC, um, SMIC is already on the entity list. Uh, in December of 2020, uh, a novel entity list action was taken place with SMIC and several of its affiliates, or most of its affiliates, uh, basically saying if um, uh, if it's an export to SMIC, any export, whether it's a toothbrush or a semiconductor production equipment tool uh, from the U.S. to uh, one of the SMIC companies, a license is required. Um, and the rule that the Trump administration published said that um, if it was for uh, 10 nanometers or smaller, basically gate all around field effect transistor production, uh, uh, then and specific to that kind of production, then that would be denied, and that for the mature node chips, uh, those would be considered case by case uh, and possibly proved. And and what the Biden administration has done formally with this rule on uh, Friday is to basically move the goalpost a little bit and say um, whether it's SMIC or any other company uh, in China, if it's for 14 nanometers or smaller or um, 16, depending upon the measuring that you use for the company. Then that is going to be per se tonight. So they make it they made it more restrictive than the original entity list action. But for the rest of SMIC for mature node items, uh, still will require a license under the existing entity list policy, but probably will be approved to be consistent with the rest of the policy if it's for mature node activities. With YMTC, a memory company, not a logic company, was not on the entity list. But what the government said is we're giving the Chinese government sixty days. Because um, the Chinese government is the one that has to approve on-site access and provision of information and, and visits to the company. And if we're not satisfied with whatever the response is, and the rule doesn't identify what the questions to the government or the company are, or the documents demanded or access required, um, then automatically you and I think 28 other companies go on to the, um, I'm sorry, 31 other, 30 other companies go on to the, uh, to the uh, entity list, meaning uh, that exports from the U.S. of whatever they are prohibited. The unverified list is not an embargo or a ban. It makes it more difficult to ship. You have to get certifications, but it's 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 um, not yet uh, an embargo. With respect to the enforcement of this, absolutely, this rule is, and the implications of this rule are much, much harder to enforce. Uh, you know, the traditional export control concept of, you know, a military part leaving the United States, going through customs that can be checked, uh, uh, you know, that's relatively easy to identify. What is going? What is it? You know, what's in the box? And and is it the end user, end use destination uh, approved? 
Um, now we're talking about, in most cases, activities that you can't spot of U.S. persons outside the U.S. or wholly foreign-made, completely commercial, often very tiny components uh, that are made with U.S. tools or technology you know, that have been out of the country for years, um, going into things, going into things, going into things that are all outside the U.S., and absolutely, that's much harder to enforce. But just because something is hard to enforce doesn't mean you don't do it if there's a broader policy concern. And, and you really have to multiply, as a government, uh, your enforcement resources in, in the following ways. You have to get allies on board. The, you know, the, just like what we saw with the uh, Russia sanctions, when 37 or so other countries signed on and imposed basically the same export controls that the United States did, the ability to spot and detect shipments and you know efforts to violate from outside the U.S. is greatly expanded because you have 36 other countries and their you know agents and enforcement and law enforcement authorities working with you. So that's tip number one. Uh, step number two is uh, great leadership, which exists, and a clear signaling by the Commerce Department that their agents and their 140 or so special agents at the Commerce Department, who, unlike any other agency in the world or in the U.S. government, frankly, um, uh, are experts at nothing but export controls. That's that's really quite unique. And um, and next is companies. I mean, on the front line, this is what I do for a living, of uh, ensuring enforcement and magnifying the effect of these rules to achieve their desired objectives. Uh, companies need to devote the people and the systems and the resources to compliance programs and to compliance attorneys and compliance staff and training of business development people, et cetera, and others on the front lines of these trade to uh, uh, to know what's prohibited and, and 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 to know that if they don't, then they are at risk of civil, criminal, or administrative penalties as well. Uh, so uh, there could always be more need for resources in the U.S. and abroad, um, but you know it's already starting off from a fairly robust position. But given the China activity that's taking place Friday, and then the Russia rule, but you have two really dramatic, very large uh, uh, export control operations underway. In addition to the regular business of identifying and regulating, you know, dual-use components for weapons of mass destruction or, or military items that the bureau has been doing for decades. So um, uh, they do have a uh, you know an allocation and appropriation for new money. Not all of that, unfortunately, is for export control enforcement. Um, uh, but uh, there will always be a need for greater resources as the mission grows. So, Kevin, thank you so much for an absolutely fascinating conversation. This is clearly a huge shot across the bow uh, and a signal to China that we're serious about stopping their progress in the chips uh, sector. And of course, the reason why this is important is that as long as they're reliant on the United States, on Europe, on Japan, on South Korea, and even on Taiwan for chips, they're probably going to be much less likely to invade Taiwan um, because they cannot be assured that they can take over those fabs in Taiwan, the TSMC operated fabs intact um, without them being destroyed and, and continue to operate them. And they could f face the same type of sanctions that Russia is now facing on imports of any chips going to the country that would absolutely cripple their industrial sector. So thank you. Fantastic conversation. Thank you so much, Sarah, for joining me on this podcast. And uh, we'll be following this issue closely uh, in the months to come. Great. Happy to help. Thanks for asking. Games without frontiers. Oh,
without tears.